0: Welcome to the Supreme Court of Virginia podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Ben Glass Law and Virginia Appellate Attorney Steve Emmert. Listening to oral arguments from the Supreme Court of Virginia is one of the best ways to stay abreast of both substantive and procedural law. And today's smart lawyers know that any case, even if it is outside their practice area, can offer a learning opportunity. So, listen, enjoy, subscribe, and leave us feedback.
1: May it please the court? I would
0: like to reserve minutes, if I may. Go right ahead.
1: Okay. Um, This appeal uh, involves the construction of Virginia Code Section 18.2 to 308.1, colon, 4, and more specifically the unit of prosecution there. I believe that we agree uh, that the answer to that question does not derive from the plain language of the statute and that we therefore have to similar to the other case, go to the Gravman or the essence of the crime. The Court of Appeals found that the purpose was to protect each principle, that is, each person protected by the protective order or a protective order. And I, I will try to continue to use that term for, for consistency. Uh, follow that unit of prosecution, if that is the purpose, uh, would, as the Court of Appeals found, uh, be the number of principles protected. It's our that that's error for several reasons. Uh, the essence of violation is not the protection, but the act of purchasing or transporting a firearm. Uh, the statute prohibits a certain class of persons from doing so because the legislature has determined that they are more dangerous than normal citizens. My primary argument is that the code is homogenous body of law that's supposed to be read together and that there are several indications within that body of law that the argument that this is a status sense, that it is directed at a class of persons and its purpose is not to protect the rules. I say that uh, first because there are statutes that expressly protect the principles of protective orders. In particular, 16.1-253.2, 16.1-253.2, um, which protects the rules from violations of certain provisions of domestic protective orders, and then 18.60.4, which protects the principles of what are skulking protective orders. Uh, in short, those two statutes do what the Commonwealth and the Court of Appeals claims that the statute at issue here does. Um, and. Those statutes do protect the person, the body of the principal. According to some of the cases I outlined in the brief, the we we want to harmonize the interpretation of the code section so that there are no contradictions or redundancies. And so the argument is that eighteen point two S3 cannot do the same thing or should not do the same thing if we can read it to do something else. Uh, and in this case we, we well, similar to the other case also we don't have to rely on the presumption that the legislature knows the laws or knows the uh, other laws in the code because Virginia code, the instant code that we're talking about four was actually amended at the same time 18.2-16.4 the stalking protective order was created in 1998 And they all of these or three of these sections, were amended in 2016, so they were working with them together at the same time. They clearly know each exists and presumably them to serve different functions. I believe it's clear from the code sections themselves that the stalking protective order and domestic protective order uh, statutes are person crimes. Uh, It's also clear from the legislative history I just mentioned and because of the Virginia Sentencing Commission's uh, discussion of that in their materials, that and, and they were enacted and uh, they're instructed by the legislature, they agree that the instant offense is not a person crime, it is not intended to protect the principles, that it is, in fact, a weapons offense. It's purpose to protect, therefore, this group of people from having. Uh, or possessing or transporting or purchasing uh, firearms. And I should note that the Kamala made the distinction that from some of the neighboring statutes that this, the neighboring statutes do not require or or do not allow people to, uh, or prohibit, I'm sorry, possession. Um, I would say that that is, that has nothing to do with the unit of prosecution because uh, the, the status here is temporary when you're subject to a protective order it presumably expire and it would create a bureaucratic mess for people to have to get rid of guns entirely and then uh, take some kind of court action to ret- uh, return them to them uh, but that leads me to my my next argument the Empire material argument with not the code sections i just mentioned but also the neighboring code sections around 18.2 308.1 colon four. And there are at least four, there's several, um, including 18.2-308.2. Uh, all of these prohibit certain classes of people from possessing firearms. And they're all right around this statute, many of which were amended or created at the same time. They prevent persons whitted by reason of insanity from having guns. Persons adjudicated legally incompetent from having guns, persons involuntarily committed from having guns, and persons with certain misdemeanor drug convictions from having guns. None of those statutes, none of this section, uh, relates or relies or talks about victims. Um, in fact, this statute, which lies in the middle of those, is the only one that could even be construed to have "quote victim." And I think it's clear that that means that the legislature was not intending to be uh, a victim statute in that respect, that it's not, its purpose is not to protect uh, principles. Um, I did, I meant to mention, I did create a figure uh, at the end of my brief, opening brief, that uh, includes a comparison of 18.2 to 308.1 colon four and 18.2 to 16.4, the stalking protective order and 16.1, 253.2, the domestic uh, predictive order statute. Um, each of those uh, have significant differences, both in the Virginia Sentencing Crime Commission uh, categories uh, and in their placement in the code uh, and in uh, their plain language. So, in short, the- The unit of prosecution should be the number of distinguishable acts, just as with possessory offenses. Um, The Commonwealth has has cited the the recent Johnson case about the failure to appear, uh, and I I don't think that that uh, hurts uh, Graffel's argument here. In fact, the Johnson case makes it clear that there are different types of offenses and that certain offenses uh, are categorized differently in terms of how the unit of prosecution is is determined. And, for example, in a footnote in that case, it mentions that possessory offenses, which is what the defendant had argued, are, are different from the administration of justice offenses, uh, where this honorable court finally found that Johnson uh, was included. Uh, this is much more like a possessor, possessory offense. Uh, it is, therefore, our argument that the unit of prosecution should be determined in the same way, the Baker case, actually, we just talked about, that it should be each incidence of possession that can be determined. Um, it has nothing to do with the number of principles protected. Uh,
2: well, counsel, may I
0: ask
1: there no you,
2: questions? Uh, I understand you, um, you're um, harmonizing some of the statutory language arguments, but why not? Why wouldn't the, the, the uh, um, General Assembly say look, if you have multiple protection, protective orders against you and you possess a weapon or, or transport a weapon or whatever uh, that, that should be separate units of prosecution, that it deserves greater punishment and we can amp the punishment up by making it separate crimes with separate punishments attached to it. Isn't there an obvious public policy that's at least rational to support that?
1: Oh, yeah, I think that's a great question. I think you're 100% right. The question is, why couldn't it mean that? It certainly could, and the legislature knows how to express its will. It it, it has done so in many other ways, and if it wants to make a certain uh, offense in one time and place culpable for uh, violating multiple statutes or multiple times. It knows how to do that. Um, the credit card larceny statute, which allows someone to be convicted multiple times just for getting one wallet uh, is clear and the case law on that is clear. Uh, uh, but this is not what it says. Uh, the legislature could say for each protective order uh, to, to which they are um, under which they are uh, held at this point. Um, so in short, I, I think you're right, it is Public policy
0: argument, uh, but that's not what the legislature has done. Thank you for tuning in to the Supreme Court of Virginia podcast. My name is Ben Glass, and Steve Emmert and I provide these oral argument audios for free as a public service. If you're a fan of the podcast, I'd love to send you my book, Renegade Lawyer Marketing, absolutely free. Just visit www.benglassreferrals.com and I'll be glad to ship it to you. This book has helped thousands of lawyers across the country improve their lives and their practices. Again, that's benglassreferrals.com. Thank you for listening, and enjoy these oral arguments from the Supreme Court of Virginia. And
1: if there are no further questions right now, I'd ask to reserve the rest of my time.
0: All right, four minutes, 48 seconds. Ms.
2: Tyson? May it please the court. Virginia Tyson again uh, for the Commonwealth. At the moment the defendant strapped the loaded pistol into the ankle holster and ventured out into the woods, he was subject to five separate protective orders issued by four different courts protecting five different people. Each order had its own existence. Each order contained a notice that pursuant to Section 18.2-308.1-4, he was not to purchase or transport a firearm while the order was in existence. The Court of Appeals did not err in finding that the temporary ban on transporting a firearm served to safeguard the individuals who were the principals of the protective orders. And that portion of the judgment of the Court of Appeals should be affirmed. And yes, we do rely heavily on the Johnson case here. And I I want to say in response to my friend's argument that the legislature in in Johnson did not say that a person charged with a felony offense or convicted of each felony offense uh, is is um, who fails to appear is guilty of the of a class six felony. In other words, the the legislature used the phrase charged with a felony in the failure to appear statute. And the issue before this court was when this Mr. Johnson had three separate felonies for which he was having a preliminary hearing on a single date in a single court, whether he had uh, violated that statute once or three times. And this court said that plainly, the uh, legislature intended for each felony to be the predicate of the failure to appear. Um, By using that, that language of a felony offense, any person charged with a felony offense who fails to appear is guilty of violating that statute. And that is the same situation that we have with the protective orders here. And the emphasis that we place on this not being a possessory offense the emphasis we place on the prohibition of purchasing a new firearm or transporting a firearm specifically is to address the footnote in um, Johnson that said possessory offenses may be uh, of, a, of a different ilk. Well, this is not a possessory offense. This um, is a temporary ban on either purchasing new firearms or additional firearms or uh, transporting them. They are action crimes. And the temporary ban, which by the way, these protective orders expired at different times, depending upon when this defendant transported his firearm, he may have been guilty of, of only three violations as opposed to five. It just so happens that all five of these were still in existence at the time he transported the firearm in the ankle holster. And so he is guilty of violating the statute five times. Now, I think it's really important in looking at whether this statute is redundant of 18.2-60.4 and 16.1-253.2, is to note that those statutes provide an enhanced punishment for those who are committing some violation of the protective order and have armed themselves. In other words, the person who goes within a hundred feet of a protected person, or shows up at the workplace, or turns off the electricity at the that the protected person's home. If that person is armed with either a firearm or a, another deadly weapon, that provides for an enhanced punishment. In the instant uh, situation, this statute and. Uh, colon four uh, criminalizes the transportation of the the firearm irrespective of any other violation of the protective order and this really does make sense because the person who has been uh, found to uh, be the respondent in the protective order has already established at least temporarily to be a danger to a particular person and so to prohibit that person, that respondent, from transporting a firearm is as another preventative measure. It's not that, that there will be an enhanced punishment when that person commits some other violation of the protective order, but it is a separate offense to transport the firearm during the time that the uh, individual protective orders are, are, are in existence. And, and so as a preventative measure, it is not redundant of those statutes that tack on an enhanced punishment for one who violates the terms of a protective order, and the the offense indeed is transporting the uh, is transporting the firearm, um, as uh, my friend on the other side has noted. But that's just the beginning of the analysis. That's not the end of the analysis. The offense in the Johnson matter was failing to appear in court. That was the beginning of the analysis. But when the question is what is the unit of prosecution, uh, you, you look further. And this court found in Johnson that that the legislature was clear in its um, in its in its intent that each separate felony would uh, support a, a predicate would be the predicate for a failure to appear f- offense. And I and I do want to take some issue with the importance of a caption. I know that uh, this was argued in the appellant's brief as well, but I don't think that this court can look to the caption of a, of a, a statute and determine what the legislature's intent is and i and i, I give us an example one that I, I thought of as i was preparing for today that um under 18.2 -154 which is shooting at an occupied vehicle uh, that is a is a property crimes against property is the caption there and yet one can be convicted of murder or manslaughter uh, under certain circumstances for the action of shooting into an occupied vehicle if there is death uh, or injury. And so uh, I I think it is in error to look to the caption to determine what the legislature intended. I think the legislature's intent um, is clear. And this statute, the one at issue here, which is uh, 308.1 colon four, is different from some that are surrounding it. Uh, If you are um, found to be uh, mentally incompetent, if you have been found not guilty by reason of insanity, then you may not possess that weapon, and, and you have to go through a process to, to have your right restored after you have um, been released or, or found to be competent. And that's not the situation we have here. This statute prohibits the transportation while the protective order is in place. It does not require such a person who is subject to the protective order to uh, get rid of uh, weapons, uh, firearms that he may already have. So this is uh, this is a, a, a very distinct statute, and it does protect those who are the principals in the protective order. And as the Court of Appeals uh, also uh, indicated in its opinion correctly, the the federal statute is not a, a good uh, fit. It's not a, a good model for us to look at in because it is different from how our legislature has dealt with the issue of transporting firearms by one who's subject to a protective order in that the, the, the federal statute has just lumped everybody together, the, the felon and the misdemeanance of uh, domestic violence, the insane, um, the incompetent, and so forth. Uh, this is a, a very specific non-possessory offense that the legislature has carved out, and this particular defendant uh, had notice on every one of those protective orders that this statute prohibited him from uh, transporting or purchasing a firearm during the uh, effectiveness or the effective dates of the protective order. And when he chose to transport that firearm on the date that he did in the ankle holster, he was violating uh, the statute five different times. It protected the five persons who uh, were the subject to the protective order, and he uh, is responsible and, and guilty of those five offenses. The trial court's ruling, again, in this case, was based upon the the number of protective orders, the number of persons who were protected. The trial court did not err, and the Court of Appeals did not err in its analysis of this issue. And we would urge this court to affirm that portion of the Court of Appeals ruling. And um, that is my argument, unless there are additional questions that I would be happy to answer.
0: All right. Thank you very much. Rebuttal?
1: Yes. Um, first of all, I'd like to address the argument that the titles or the sections don't um, uh, sh- shouldn't be considered in, in, in perhaps the way that I suggested. I, I, I concede that they are not technically part of the law, but the, 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 there are several cases I cited that do say mm. that they are indicative of where the intent of the legislature lay when they created that law, and in fact, uh, in Jordan's Court of Appeals, Case, but as Jordan, I think we both cited uh, that is looking into the gravamen of a crime of robbery in order to determine how many uh, what the unit of prosecution for that uh, charge could be. Uh, the court of appeals wrote, "We believe it is significant that robbery is denominated as a crime against a, per- a person in the code of codification of our criminal statutes." Uh, that's in page four of the of the. Case. And that's also relevant because that is a huge difference in unit prosecution uh, law, whether it is a crime against the person or if it is a status offense or a drug offense, a possessory offense. And it's my contention that the 18.2 60.4 and the 16.1 253.2 are, in fact, and I think they're clearly person crimes. They are are to protect the principles of protective orders. That is not the case for the statute we're talking about. Uh, It is not a person crime, and so the unit of prosecution is different. Um, Secondly, the Commonwealth is arguing that this statute is to protect the, the principles. However, there's nothing in there that requires the defendant to be anywhere near the principal that uh, he or she uh, be in danger or know anything about this act of transportation or or uh, purchase. And if there weren't these other statutes, then maybe I would have to concede that you know that is necessarily implied, but there are. And this has got to be doing something different. Uh, next, she mentions that the other neighboring statutes are particularly different and that this statute was... Uh, unique in some ways. I would argue that's simply because of the status. Uh, You don't automatically, and I mean that literally, you don't automatically not become adjudicated legally incompetent in the past. You do automatically uh, go out from under a protective order when the expiration period uh, comes, when the two-year period or whatever it might be uh, arrives. Uh, You don't automatically cease to be adjudicated uh, not guilty by reason of insanity so it's just a matter of the, the the status and that is the only difference it's the only significant difference next the the Court of Appeals did did argue this about the in opposite nature of the federal statute that a number of these prohibitions were all in the same uh, code section and I believe I pointed out in my brief that that's that's true what that means uh, because the Virginia legislature has proceeded differently, is that Mr. Graffel could be convicted under separate code sections for the same act. Uh, And he was. He was convicted under this code section and under 18.2 308.2. 8.2. However, that that does not apply or uh, it's not relevant to whether or not he can be convicted five times under the same code section. And the federal law on that type of multiplicitous conviction is, is, has been clear uh, in the United States Code 18922 g that it doesn't matter what status, how many statuses, how many firearms, how many uh, times you have fulfilled X class, uh, it's still only one offense, it's one time in place. So uh, we, I would ask that you overturn the Court of Appeals respectfully, and if there are no further questions, I will leave it there.
0: All right, thank you very much. I asked the justices to uh, reconvene in our virtual conference room at 11 o'clock. And now this session uh, is adjourned until 9 o'clock tomorrow morning. Would you
1: hire an appellate lawyer to handle your jury trial? Of course not. Trying cases requires a different focus, a different way of speaking, even a different way of thinking from handling appeals. So why would you ask a trial lawyer to handle your appeal? When it comes time to appear in an appellate court, trust a lawyer who specializes in appeals only. Steve Emmert limits his practice to appeals. Other lawyers consult him when they face tough problems in the appellate maze. Focus on what you do best. Call Steve Emmert at 757-965-5021-DIRECT to find out how he can help you. Again, that's Steve Emmert at 757-965-5021.